0: Hey, we're going to jump into the scriptures tonight. So um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 2 Kings. That's where we're going to be in is 2 Kings. Uh, We're jumping into the story of Josiah. Some of you guys have heard of Josiah. You know Josiah, um, just a fascinating character. Um, We're moving along in our series on our vision and values. And... um, if you have missed any of our vision and values, we have a podcast up on our website. Please go back and listen to the past three weeks. If you're new to our church and our story, and you're trying to figure out like what is this all about, what are they founding this church upon? We're literally spelling it out for you through this series. So, uh, first week we talked about our vision as a church on earth as it is in heaven. Second week we talked about our mission as a church to make disciples who know who they are in Christ and can change the world. Um, and And then last week, we started with our first core value. We have 10 core values. In theory, you got a bookmark. Did anybody get a bookmark when they walked in the door? A couple of you, awesome, one, two. Um, If you didn't get one afterwards, there's some more on the table out there. But those have our 10 core values listed out for you. And uh, we would love for you to start considering them, thinking about them, praying over them. Um, So tonight, our second core value is this. The scriptures are authoritative and tell us the truth that brings freedom. The scriptures are authoritative and tell us the truth that brings freedom. So, if you're already at 2 Kings, you're, you're almost there. Turn to 2 Kings chapter 22. That's where we're going to be. Second Kings 22. We're going to jump into the story of Josiah. Second Kings 22. And verse 1, a little bit of scripture for you, but it's good. It says this, verse 1, Josiah was eight years old when he became king. Is there anybody who's eight right, right now? No? A couple? Yes, okay, so we're going to make you king after this. You cool with that? Uh, Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 31 years. His mother's name was Jedidah, daughter of Adiah, And she was from Boskath. Everybody knows where that is. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed completely the ways of his father, David. Not turning aside to the right or to the left. In the 18th year of his reign, King Josiah sent the secretary Shaphan, son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, to the temple of the Lord. He said, go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, and make him get ready the money that has been brought into the temple of the Lord. Which the doorkeepers have collected from the people. Make them entrust it to men appointed to supervise the work on the temple, and make these men pay the workers who repair the temple of the Lord the carpenters, the builders, and the masons. Also, make them purchase timber and dressed stone to repair the temple. Verse 7. But they need not account for the money entrusted to them because they are honest in their dealings. Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. He gave it to Shaphan who read it. Then Shaphan the secretary went to the king and reported to him, your officials have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and have entrusted it to workers and supervisors at the temple. Then Shaphan the secretary informed the king Hilkiah the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. When the king heard these words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, son of Shaphan, Akbor, son of Micaiah, Shaphan the secretary, and Isaiah the king's attendant, go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all of Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because those who have gone before us have not obeyed the words of this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written there concerning us. Now skip over to chapter 23, verse 1. Then the king called together all of the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the temple of the Lord. The king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord, to follow the Lord and keep his commands, statues, and decrees, with all his heart and with all his soul, thus confirming the words of the covenant written in this book, then all the people pledge themselves to the covenant. The Bible is powerful. The word of God is powerful. It has the ability to cut deep to the heart, to heal a wound, to speak wisdom and truth. And here we see in this story, the scriptures doing the thing that they've done down through history, and that is to reform and to renew a people and their understanding of God. Where we jumped into the story, Israel has a massive leadership failure on its hands. Um, I, I think we have a photo of the grandfather of King Josiah. This is Manasseh. There he is, standing right there in front of this great big pig statues looking sort of a thing. And um, it was hard to get this photo, but this is actually iPhone 3S, believe it or not. It was there, took a photo of him. Um, and Manasseh was a king who re-established the local shrines. He turned Israel to polytheistic worship of Baal and Asherah in the temple. He worshipped foreign gods. He even sacrificed children to Moloch. In fact, uh go back to the photo, this is what he's doing in this photo. Um, he's he has a child in his hands and there's a fire lit at the base of the statue that would have heated up the iron hands of, the, of this uh, idol. And he's placing the child into these iron hands to kill the child. So this is Israel. The people of God are being led by a man like this. Oh, and he also rounded up the prophets and the priests and killed them. He had a legacy of hating the word of God. Now, Manasseh has a son named Ammon. And according to the Talmud, um, Ammon burnt the Torah and he allowed spider webs to cover the altar through complete disuse. So what you have to imagine in Israel, this is a few hundred years after the time of David, the temple is in disrepair, it's falling apart, it's not being used any longer. The last time it was used was for um, prostitution and and sex worship. And what you have to imagine is by the time that Josiah comes around, the the grandson of this man, Uh, there's no Bible. There's no Torah. Remember, it got burned by his father, Ammon. And so you can imagine there's no Bible study happening before bed. There's no family prayer before dinner. The temple of God has long been used for idol worship, and babies are being sacrificed to a foreign deity, Molech. Now, Josiah comes to power and we really don't know much about Josiah aside from this 300-year-old prophecy that there would be one. There would be someone who comes along and becomes king and reforms all of Israel. And so as Josiah comes to power, he doesn't have access to this prophecy. He's never heard, uh, he's never read from the Bible. There's no Bibles at all. So he's living on the fumes, on the oral history of David of people who followed God before his lineage. And he decides out of that heart to remodel the temple. So as they remodel the temple, something happens. They open up a wall and they find a scroll. And the story goes is that one of the priests, when he was being hunted by Manasseh, he hid the word of God in the wall of the temple, hoping that one day somebody would find it. It was like the last copy of the word of God. And so Josiah finds the, the scroll, it's read before him, he tears his clothes. This was an ancient sign of being, he was upset, he knew that he wasn't right with God and he hadn't been leading, Israel hadn't been led in the ways of God, and then he reads it aloud to all of the people of Israel, and what does it say? They renew their hearts to the covenant. Renewal takes place, revival breaks out. What a great story. But my question to you tonight is, does the Bible still do that? Does the Bible still do this anymore? Does the Bible still reform our understanding of God and bring renewal? Isn't it radically out of step with our culture today? Isn't it full of myths that can't really be trusted? You see, for many people today, the Bible is a problem. The confusing material The bizarre commands of Leviticus, the sexual ethic of Jesus, and the New Testament. That's not to mention the questions around the historicity of the Bible. And really, what this has culminated to in our culture, and especially within the church, this is a message for the church, is a crisis. A crisis that centers around biblical authority. Is the Bible authoritative today? It's full of narratives. How can a narrative be authoritative over your life? What about the weird stuff in the Bible? What is descriptive and what is prescriptive in the Bible? Is it wise to base your life around a book that has stuff in it that you don't like? Recently, I had a couple of my friends um, go through divorces. And I'm young, I'm 28 years old. Uh, both of my friends around my same age. And it was just a gut punch. I don't know if you've, many of you have probably experienced divorce, if not in your family and people that you know. And for me, it was just, it shook me because these guys had been married for like a year or two years. And what was fascinating, as I began to talk with them about what happened, both of their wives had left them And had fallen away from following Jesus, and so as I began to kind of counsel them and talk with them, they both revealed. This is—it's fascinating. I don't know. I I know there's correlation. I don't know about causality. Um, They both—both of their wives had started listening to this podcast. That was essentially the purpose of the podcast was to deconstruct biblical authority for Christians like, listen, it's, it's full of stuff that you can't understand. Here's why. Here's this, a new perspective uh, about the historicity of the Bible. And so they watched their wives, essentially through this podcast, deconstruct their faith in God, fall away from him, and in doing so, decided to leave their husbands and their kids. Do not be mistaken. Controversies in the church around marriage, sex, gender, war, peace, they all all center around what do you think about the Bible's authority. See, on the one side, you have a group of people in the church and in our culture that they love the Bible as literature. It's great literature. It's it's incredibly well put together. It's a picture into the ancient world. But the Bible's no more authoritative or no more inspired than you're inspired or I'm inspired. The Bible has tons of good stories. Um, Jesus' teaching was interesting, uh, but it doesn't have any kind of truth claim on my life. That's on one side. On the other side of the church, we have this bible olatry, this idolatry of the Bible that doesn't take into account the literature of the Bible, the genre that it was written in, or the fact that each person approaches the text with presuppositions. And so you actually, when you come to the text, it, you actually have to work hard to understand what it's saying for you today. And there's a lack of understanding of the context of the Bible which has led many to apply its truth in ways that were perhaps not intended by the original authors. And so maybe you're sitting here tonight and and you found yourself in one church that's one way or another church that's another way and you're here and you're like, why? Why do we have to talk about this? Is this really worth being a core value? Well, maybe what would be helpful is if we started with what the Bible actually is. So, so what is the Bible and how do I read it? Well, what the Bible isn't, I'll tell you that first, is it's not a scientific document. The Bible isn't a scientific document. It's not a history of the world that fo- it, it, it focuses primarily on Israel. It, it's not a rule book for how you can live your best life now, and it certainly isn't untouched by humans. The Bible is not a book, it's a library of 66 books that spans 1,500 years of history with over 40 authors, and that's not to mention the editors that helped those authors put the Bible together. The Bible tells us stories about Yahweh uh, and a people group called Israel. It's full of census data, it has songs, it has wise sayings, it has apocalyptic images, it has biography, and it has correspondence between friends. And so what we have to do when we approach the Bible is we have to learn to read the Bible not literally, but literarily. Maybe some of you have heard that before. We don't read the Bible literally, we read it literarily. And what I mean by that is we have to understand the context of what we're reading to understand the truth of what is being said and thus what its authority over our lives is. So for example, let's say that I meet up with a friend on this Friday evening And they come up to me and they say, oh man, you wanna get dinner? I am literally starving. Well, what they probably mean is that they had sushi for lunch at like 11 a.m. and it's 8 p.m. and so they're a little bit hungry. They're not literally starving. But in the common vernacular of the American young person, exaggeration is known not to be taken literally. In fact, normally when we say I literally something, what we really mean is I figuratively something, right? (laughs) I'm figuratively starving. Can we please go get something to eat, right? And and just like you wouldn't read your anatomy textbook the way that you read Calvin and Hobbes, we need to learn to read the Bible literarily. What is the genre? What is the context? And each genre must be read with that in our minds. The challenge of reading the Bible isn't what does this mean today? The challenge is, what did this mean then, and what is God doing with the truth in me today? Taking into account, who was this to? Why did God write this at this point in history to them? What is the core of truth, and what could this truth mean for me today? So, this is the boring part of the message, but it's important. How do you read the Bible? Here are some paradigms for you so that you can read the Bible well. First is this, prescription and description. There's a difference between those two. Um, There are certain things that the Bible prescribes that we should do, and there are certain things that the Bible is just simply describing about the, the story or about the context. So, polygamy is one. Does the Bible describe polygamy or does it prescribe polygamy? Okay, My wife is like, describe, yes, correct. You look back in Genesis, and actually, the Bible prescribes that marriage is between a man and a woman for life. That's the prescription of the Bible. And in fact, if you, a close reading of the Old Testament, whenever polygamy takes place, it ends horribly for the people. Horrible things happen for the people involved, right? So it describes polygamy, it doesn't prescribe polygamy. What about sexual immorality, sleeping around or fooling around with people that you're not married to? Well, the New Testament is chock full of prescription about how we use our bodies sexually and properly, right? Or what about care for the poor? Does it describe care for the poor or does it prescribe care for the poor? Jesus is prescribing that we care for the poor. He's commanding that we care for the poor. So when we read the Bible, we need to be thinking about, is this descriptive or is this prescriptive? That's really helpful. Second tool is this, eisegesis versus exegesis. How many of you have ever heard these words before? A few of you guys have heard these words? Great. Um, Eisegesis is this. What do I think? What do I believe? Let me find it in here exegesis is, I'm going to come to the text, I know I have presuppositions, I know I have beliefs, coming to the text, but what is the Bible actually teaching me about how I should live my life? I need to be challenged. If God never challenges you, then you're not worshiping God, you're worshiping yourself. Thirdly, inerrancy versus trustworthy. This is going to ruffle some feathers. The Bible doesn't claim inerrancy, the word is not in the Bible, You can look through all of the Bible. You will never find the word inerrant in the Bible. And so it can't claim something that it doesn't claim, right? But the Bible does claim that it is trustworthy. In John chapter 21, verse 24, John says this. He says, we know that the testimonies given in this gospel, this account of Jesus' life, are trustworthy. Um, Another really helpful tool is anytime you're reading through the gospels, look for proper names. Why? Because the people who are named by their proper name within the Gospels would have been alive at the writing of the Gospels. There's a great book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses that can entirely change the way that I read the Gospels. Um, basically, it's the, it's the ancient way of putting footnotes. It's like, hey, you know that guy Rufus? Yeah, he carried the cross for, he carried, his dad carried the cross for Jesus. So if you at all wanna hear about what actually happened when, when that guy came and carried the cross for Jesus, Rufus and Alexander, they live over there. You should go talk to them. Why are their names in here? Aside from, check my sources. The Bible's trustworthy. Yes, there are grammatical errors all throughout the Bible. It's the classic story. You go to college, the professor's like, hey, here's actually the text right here, and this is all of the grammatical errors. They wouldn't say that. They'll just say errors in the text. There's a bunch, it's a book full of errors. You can't trust it. And yes, there are points of view that differ, but that doesn't mean that it isn't Trustworthy. That doesn't mean that at the core of truth that's being taught from the scriptures, you can't base your life around it. Is the Bible confusing? At times, yes. Is it odd? At times, yes. But I believe the most important things in the Bible are easy to understand and can support you placing your trust in them. Now, um, even with these tools, and there's so many more, I really had to like, hold back the temptation to make this about like how to read the Bible and all of that and get nerdy on you guys. Um, Even with all of the tools in the world and all of the proofs and and the the books for and against the historicity of the Bible, even if you have a correct reading of the text, many will still come to the conclusion that the Bible is not for them. The Bible could be shown, there could be some document that comes out and it's shown the Bible is 100% true without a doubt and many would still have a problem with it. And that is because of something deeper in us. Our problem with the Bible isn't as much a literature problem as much as it is a problem with authority. You know, we've seen a massive shift in the past 500 years in the area of authority. 500 years ago, Charles Taylor talks about this in his book, A Secular Age, 500 years ago, the priest was the authority. And so, whatever your priest said, that's the way it was. That was the truth. My priest says it. That settles it. That shifted with the rise of science and reason and the enlightenment to um, about 100 years ago, the doctor and the scientist are the authority in a culture. The scientist has reasoned it out. The doctor says it. That settles it. That's the authority in my life. Now, um, another shift has taken place. And today, the therapist is the authority. My therapist says this, that's just the way it's going to be in my life. Many use their therapist as an excuse to stay in sin or keep wrong thinking around in their minds and hearts because, well, my therapist just said, I'm not quite ready to forgive that person. My therapist says that I'm just not quite ready to step into that. And we like therapist's authority because they rarely violate our own authority. That's radically different than the message of Jesus. Sin no more, repent and believe the kingdom is at hand. The truth is this, is that we are allergic to external authority today. Currently, we're making another shift from the age of authenticity to the age of the image. And what this means is that we're adding to the fear of being restrained, we already had that fear of being restrained, a new fear of missing out on the ideal self. Tyranny is no longer felt from what we ought to do, but what we could do. Social media has heightened the awareness of the images of what we could be. And so we speed up trying our best to accomplish as much of that image as possible with the resources that we have. And the problem with authority and with a life pursuit after an image is that an authority has the ability or the potential to conflict with our pursuit of that image or as is the case with the Bible, it could cause us to sacrifice that image altogether. I think Paul's words to us A quick definition search yielded this about conform and transform. Conform, conformity is the act of matching attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors to group norms. Transformation is to make a thorough or dramatic change in the character of a person. One changes the image that you give off, the other changes you. See, Jesus doesn't Place an image out in front of you and say, Hey, I got a plan for you to reach this image. Jesus kills you. <laughs> the cross was the, the largest mass killing in history. It says that when he went to the cross, you died with him. And then you get a new life altogether. That is why the dominant metaphor of the Christian life is second birth, getting born again because you died. So if you want transformation deep down and you don't want to just change what's on the surface so that you can be liked by the people that you think will fulfill you, then you cannot build your life around an image. You must go deeper. Paul says you are literally designed to be a living sacrifice. Vision over your life, living sacrifice. Here's my paraphrase of that passage. So in view of God's goodness toward you, offer your life here on earth as a dead life, a clean slate, ready to be built up solely by Jesus' truth into a new life. This is how you worship him. Many, many people subconsciously see the opportunity to conform to an image as a hopeful prospect for life purpose because at least it touches some level of desire and identity in us. But God does not look at what man looks at. He looks at the heart. And if you come to him, he will not allow you to turn a relationship with him into a pursuit of an image. That's what he calls dead religion. That's that's a tomb on the inside with pretty stones on the outside. Authority means that you give up the right to pursue the image and you will be transformed into what he wants for you. Does it sound stifling yet? Guys, to be honest, I don't think that we can afford to not have his authority in our lives. If I go to the car dealership down the road and buy a Ford, and they tell me, hey, it takes premium gas, and I go, eh, I'm gonna put spaghetti in it. They're like, okay, it's not gonna work. I go, I think I'm gonna put spaghetti in it. There's a designer who designed the Ford, who designed it to run on premium gasoline. And when I think that I know better than the designer and choose to do things with the design that are contrary to the design, things don't work well. Next slide. Within the word authority is the word author. And without an author, there's no intention or design. Without a design, there is no purpose. Without purpose, there is no meaning. And without meaning, people are left to create meaning out of what is meaningless, which leads to depression and hopelessness at best medicated and at worst lasting. Without a good authority, we're left with a void that we must fill with other stories about who we are. And when we, and we make these stories, whether we realize it or not, authoritative in our life, the truth is that there is nobody who lives without authority in their lives. The only problem is that narratives that claim that money or power or sexual allure are where real purpose is found, those narratives tend to eat us alive. As David Foster Wallace so poignantly said, the more power that we have, the more we feel like we need. The more we pursue sex, the uglier and more unlovable we feel. The more we chase money, the poorer we think we are. So, Could there be a good authority that leads to freedom in life more than a turning in on yourself and death? I think so. Jesus said, truth leads to freedom. And so if you're believing a life-shaping narrative or story that doesn't produce in your life the fruit that Jesus said you would see in your life, if you believe the truth, then you've believed an incorrect story. The truth for me, guys, and you need to know this, is that I don't believe in Jesus because the Bible is infallible or inerrant. Like I said, those words are not in the Bible. But I believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and Jesus believes and endorses the Bible as trustworthy, so all endorse it and believe that the Bible is trustworthy as well. You you see, I think that the way that we should read the Bible is the way that Jesus read the Bible. So how did Jesus read it? How did he read it? Well, he, he first believed that the Bible was divine and it was human. Mark 12, 36 says this, The Holy Spirit spoke through David himself. David said, Jesus is talking about a passage that David wrote in the Psalms. And it's fascinating how he phrases this. The Holy Spirit spoke through David. David said, isn't that interesting? So when David was writing, he wasn't like in a trance, just like taken over by the Holy Spirit, writing the Bible out. It says that the Holy Spirit was involved with David writing the scriptures, but David's personality, his life circumstances, the things that he, were, he was thinking were also involved in the authorship of the Bible. It's both divine and human. This is what Jesus believed. Secondly, it was important and authoritative Matthew 5, 17, do not think, Jesus speaking, that I have come to get rid of what is written in the law or the prophets. I have not come to do this. Instead, I have come to fulfill what is written. Incredibly high view of the text. In fact, he goes as far as to say that if it, whoever removes any part of the law or the prophets, they will be called least in the kingdom. It's a pretty high view of the scriptures. He, he viewed it as a place to find morality and wisdom. You, all over um, the Sermon on the Mount, he's, he's picking from the Old Testament. He says, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. And he's giving, he's, he's giving the new law, if you will, the law of the Spirit. And he says, love your enemy. Do not look lustfully on someone. For that's committing adultery in your heart. He viewed it as a place for where, where we could find our morality and the way that we should live as people who follow our Rabbi Jesus he viewed it as prophetic and revelatory. There's the moment, many of you guys will remember, where Jesus stands up in the temple and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah 61. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Before that, what we don't realize is that many Jews had thought that what that was talking about, the me there, is the people of Israel. And he's like, no, this is actually pointing to me and I'm here. It prophesied about me so that I can set captives free and I can speak truth. And maybe most importantly, he viewed the scriptures as the truth that leads to freedom in life. John 15, Jesus speaking, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the what? The word I have spoken to you. Jesus believes that the word of God, when we submit to being discipled by it, prunes us to make us even more fruitful. So we need to talk about pruning and cutting the fact is this, is that God rewards all growth with pruning. It's a reward. I just learned this. I don't know how much you guys have thought about vines, but um, grapevines. if you don't prune them, they will continue to grow and to grow and to grow and will eventually stretch themselves beyond their capacity to be productive. So if you don't prune, prune back a grapevine, you will just have all of these vines growing all over the place and no grapes. But, if you cut a vine correctly at the right time and in the right place, it will produce more fruit and more consistently. Many have thought that God's discipline, his pruning in life is a difficult circumstance or some sort of pain And while getting cut can be painful, God does not inflict pain so that pain can shape you up. The pain isn't what cleans you, it's the word from God about a matter or a situation that cleans you. Remember what it said, it said this, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. In Jesus' mind, the word of God, truth, when heard and believed prunes away what doesn't belong in the life of someone who is a living sacrifice in the life of someone who's dead to sin. So whenever something ugly comes up in our lives for maybe it's a temptation or it's a moment of weakness The primary goal of it being exposed is not to shame you. It's brought to the surface so that it can be pruned so that you might experience victory in that area. His goal for you is victory. It says that we go from glory to glory, not glory to shame. And you feel bad enough? Okay, great, to glory. This past week, I found myself um, in a room full of all of these pastors from all over the world, some really amazing uh, people. And um, I'm hanging out, talking, networking, whatever. And all of a sudden, this thing came up in my heart where I knew all of these other uh, people from different, their, their podcasts, or they wrote that book, or they're doing this thing around the world, and people are listening to them because of what their take on this is. And I had this thing come up in my heart where I, I had this need to be special and important. I'm looking at everybody, I'm going, oh, okay, uh, what am I doing? Okay, uh, well, you know, I just planted a church. Yeah, it's going really well. It's going great. Uh, it's like all of a sudden I need to have this thing uh, to, to say so that people will actually look to me as somebody who's worth listening to. Listening to. And, and I, I was, I, I, as I was driving away from this gathering, I, I just started thinking, why? Why do you still need, Alex, why do you still need to be validated by humans to feel good about yourself? And I realized, I, it, it, I was like, oh, here we are something's come to the surface that needs to be pruned away. It's not come to the surface so God can say, yeah, you aren't like those guys. They're they're doing awesome things and they're secure. And here you are just full of insecurity. No, it's brought to the surface so that with a word, with the truth, he can cut it away. Oh yeah, that right there, yeah, we need to cut that. So I came home. I drove home. I'm I'm processing with God. I'm going, yeah. I still, yeah. I I thought I was over this, Lord. Still, okay. Cut me right there. I I need it to go a little bit deeper. Prune that away right there. And see, as I shared what had happened that day and what had come up in my heart with my wife and with Jacob, um, the next day, um, God. How many of you guys understand? He often prunes you by speaking through those around you. Um, As I met with them and shared what had happened, they're both like, "That's not the truth." The truth isn't that your value comes from what people think about you. The truth isn't that your value comes from doing amazing things in the kingdom. That's not the truth. The truth is that your value has already been settled outside of your performance. You're accepted as a son and adopted, so you don't need the approval of others. You don't work a bunch to try to get to rest. He's given you rest, and now you get to work from that rest. That's the truth. Oh, good, cut me there, Lord. Cut me right there. I don't want this issue coming back without me having another level of victory in it. I want to settle this truth in my heart. Why does the word of God matter so much? Because it brings us into relationship with God through our agreeing with the truth, and we we begin to live more free like Jesus intended for his living sacrifices. I'm a dead person. Cut me there so that you can build me on the truth, not the other way around. As frustrating as it might be for some, the Bible is best understood when it's at least tried. The context for understanding God isn't the pursuit of understanding, it's the pursuit of relationship. You didn't quite get that because this is good. The context of understanding God is not the pursuit of understanding. It's the pursuit of relationship. I think for many, um, the general sentiment of Christians who leave the church and stop believing in the authority of the Bible is that at some point, understanding it became more important than the relationship they were getting through it. The context for revelation is relationship. Psalm 34 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Jacob, uh, our worship pastor here, he had this word a couple years ago that I'll I'll just never forget this revelation into that text. And he basically said this. He said, you know, everywhere else in life, it's see what you want to eat, then eat it. You go to a restaurant, you get the menu out, You look at it and you see what you want to eat and then you make a decision about what you like that you're seeing on what you're going to taste. But with God, it's very different. It's taste and then you'll see. It's try and then you'll understand. With God, it's come and experience. Then you will understand. John 15, 15 says this, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. Relationship, friendship, is the context for revelation and understanding. So if you want to understand the scriptures and you want to understand God's truth, the context for that to take place is being in relationship with him. So here's my challenge to you this evening. Most of us sitting in this room know what a life-centered outside of the promises of God and the scriptures feels like. Most of us knows what that feels like. Maybe you're even eating the fruit of living that way tonight. Here's my challenge to you. Try the way of Jesus and see if you like the fruit. Try his teachings and just see what happens. The very worst is that you're like, oh, he was wrong, and I was right all along. God does not force us into relationship. He gives us a choice. He leads by putting two trees in the garden. He says, eat from this one, not that one. It's up to you. So he's not like the hound of heaven who's going to knock your door down and force you to follow him. No, it's just an offer. And then compare the fruit that you got outside of him with the fruit that you get inside of him and see what you like better. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, All scripture is God-breathed and useful for correction, teaching, encouragement, and rebuke. What if you were to just sit down tomorrow morning and see what would happen if you let the scriptures correct you, teach you, and encourage you? You're like, I need some correction in my life because things, the the fruit that I'm getting from me being the author, it's not great. Or I don't understand what I'm about to step into tomorrow, so God, would you actually teach my heart, whether the circumstance changes or not, teach my heart about this. Or God, I'm super discouraged about the season that I'm in right now. I need some encouragement, and it's not coming from the situation. So I'm going to go to you to get encouraged by you. Try it. Start in Matthew It's the first book in the New Testament, it's the the, narrative about the life of Jesus, and just start reading about Jesus, I promise you, he'll challenge you, he might even correct you, he'll encourage you, and he'll give you purpose in your life, I promise, just test it out, and if you're here tonight and you already follow Jesus, you're not skeptical, for the follower of Jesus, let him cut you, read the Bible, (laughs) I don't know how else to say it, every day. Set time aside to just say, I need the truth to come and cut me deep so that I can get free. I need the truth to cut me deep so that I actually produce fruit in my life rather than growing in all these directions without any, any guidance, never producing fruit and constantly extending myself like a vine. We have this great resource called The Bible Project. Maybe some of you have heard of The Bible Project before. It's incredible. They've made videos. It's a Hebrew professor uh, named Tim Mackey and his buddy uh, John. And they have made videos for every book in the Bible that are like little cartoon narratives explaining the purpose of the book in the grander narrative of the scriptures incredibly helpful stuff. Go watch some videos tonight, okay? If you don't understand Leviticus, go watch the book on, the video on Leviticus. You'll enjoy it a lot more than probably reading through all of Leviticus. Um, but go, like, say, okay, I'm gonna go through Matthew, go watch the video on Matthew, then start reading through Matthew. Oh, I really wanna get interested, I'm interested in the prophetic literature of the Old Testament. Go watch the video on Isaiah and start reading through Isaiah. See how he would prune you this week. Let us not forget that the two things we have at our disposal for having relationship with our creator is the Holy Spirit and the word of God. May we neglect neither and give ourselves to both. Let's stand up and pray together as we close. Father, as we um, talk about the authority of your word tonight and what it produces in us, would you revive us again? Would you renew our hearts for the truth again? Renewal is what we're after. Make us aware of your spirit. Help us to place our focus on relationship with you instead of having all of the answers in life. You've called us friends. May we actually function like friends. Let's just take a moment just to be quiet and uh, to listen. We invite you, Holy Spirit, now to come and to speak. Is there anything that you want to uh, say to any of us? Anything from the message that you want to bring to mind? Just take a moment just to be quiet. There may be a a thought that comes to your mind. There might be a scripture passage that comes to your mind that you've read before. There might be um, a memory that comes to mind. Hang on to that. God created your mind and imagination to use them. What he makes, he intends to use So let's just take a moment to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us. Yeah, God, we don't want just uh, good ideas or um, good thoughts. We want an encounter with you. So come speak to us. Where are you touching our hearts right now? What are you saying? just invite you to come into the room, Holy Spirit, and to do whatever it is that you want to do. But specifically, coming from a message like this, one of the things that I had this realization this week is that many of us have a problem with authority because we've never seen an authority that increases our freedom. We've never encountered or experienced any kind of authority that increases um, our ability to actually become the people that we were made to be. And part of that is that, for for many people, um, this has been the case that they haven't had good fathers have been the good authority that has freed up that household that you grew up in to be free and to become all that God made you to be. And so I just feel like there's an appropriate opportunity for us to come to receive a father's blessing. The father, I just feel like there's two things that he wants to get into us through the scriptures and it's that he's kind and he doesn't judge you with the scriptures because he judged Jesus on the cross. He has no more judgment left for you He just has the benefits of what Jesus' death and resurrection accomplished. That's what he wants to give to you. That's the lens that he wants you to start reading the scriptures through.